0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, and thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Having given due respect and honor for the King James tongue and the beauty and the poetry there, I also at the same time want to say that version doesn't really unlock the message of the 13th chapter of Corinthians like some of the other translations do. So I'll actually be using NIV in order to bring out some of this a little more clearly. The title of my sermon today is, What is Love? I apologize for the uncreative title. It just doesn't have a lot of zing. But I thought about it, and I couldn't think of anything else that really embodies the the subject matter of the 13th chapter of Corinthians any better than the simple question, what is love? It's been commonly observed by a lot of scholars that the 13th chapter of Corinthians naturally divides itself into three parts. The first three verses talk about the necessity and the preeminence of love above all the spiritual gifts. The verses 4 through 7 talk about the qualities, the characteristics of love, and really helps define love for us because in those verses it says this is what love does and this is what love never does. And then in the 8th through the 13th verses it states the durability and the endurance of love. So since... The chapter lays itself out in such a manner, that's real easy for me to take that as an outline, and we'll be dealing with those three things today. The preeminence of love, the character, the nature, the definition of love, and the endurance of love. Let me go back and pick up the first cluster of verses in a different version so it unpacks this for us. If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. Now now see, that's the first place where I got confused when I was a a young man, a child. This is one of those chapters that my dad encouraged me to memorize. So I was memorizing uh, the part about charity. And in my simple little mind, I was thinking about charity in terms of giving money away. And so it never really dawned on me, even though I could quote the chapter, that I was talking about love. Now, older, more mature people would have understood that, but I didn't. So right away, it's a clarifying point to turn this over to a more uh, modern term that we would understand if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, and I don't have love when I do it. Paul says for himself, as an example, that I would only be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body to hardships that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So we have gifts of the Spirit listed here, tongues, prophecy, special understanding or enlightenment or the ability to teach others. And faith that can move mountains, and the ability to give sacrificially, even offering one's own life. And Paul doesn't pull any punches here, and he says, any of those things, if I would do that, if you would do that, and you don't have love, they are meaningless. The ability to process the deepest mysteries of the world, or possessing faith that could move a mountain, if you don't have love, I'm not impressed. Love rules, period. And I've seen some people, quite honestly, with the personality of a rattlesnake that pretend they're operating in the gifts of the Spirit. They impress a few people, but they wouldn't impress Paul. He says, I don't care if you talk talk in tongues all day long. If you don't have love, I'm not impressed. Now, the profile of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. And you know as I read that. The first thing I do is I start checking myself for whether I really understand love. Whether I really operate in love. Whether I really truly love my wife. Because that's a, that's a very indicting list. If I tell my wife I love her, then I have to prove that by the way I act towards her. If I tell you I love you as a Christian brother or a sister, I have to prove that by the way I act toward you and interact with you. And Paul has just rattled off a list of things that he said, if you're going to talk about love, you're going to pretend to love, then let me just remind you what love will always do and things that love will never do. So Holy Spirit, smite us with conviction right now in our relationships. The world doesn't understand what love is. They confuse love, obviously, with lust. They confuse love with kindness. They confuse love with infatuation. They confuse love with biological urges. They confuse love with adoration. They love their house, they love their car, they love their pet. They love the last movie they saw, they love their favorite restaurant, they love their privacy, and in none of these things do they remotely understand what love is. Interestingly, Paul defines love not as an abstract concept, but he defines love as a function, not what you think, not what you feel, but what you and this is what Jesus taught. One commentator summarized the definition of love according to this chapter by saying, love is first of all an action, an unconditional commitment, and a promise that is never broken. And I, I think that's a great definition. Jesus said, if you... Love me, help me out. What did he say? I can't remember. (laughs) Keep my commandments. If you say you love me, do something to prove that. If you love me, keep my commandments. To love God is to make an unconditional commitment to him, to keep your vow to him, to serve him until you die. We understand love better by studying what love always does and what love never does. So here's some of the things that love never does. First of all, love, Paul says, love does not envy. Now, the 13th chapter of Corinthians has been read more often than not as a standalone passage. Passage. That is, without any regard to anything that surrounds it, the previous chapters, the following chapters, without any reference to the uh, context of the time in which it was written or the circumstances under which it was written, the church it was written to, just flip the Bible open, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it is full enough to... Operate as a standalone passage. You don't have to know anything about anything that's going on around it to read the 13th chapter and say, wow, what a brilliant piece of writing. So, probably, let me just throw a careless figure out there. 95% of the time, people read 1 Corinthians 13 as a standalone document. But the problem with doing that is we miss out on some of the rich information that goes along with understanding the context in which Paul wrote this. So while it's a great piece of work and it, it's a great tribute to love, we understand that the reason he wrote this, if you've been with me in this series on 1 Corinthians, is because he's writing to a church that is struggling to understand and execute love. They haven't been loving each other a whole lot recently. That's the reason they're in so much trouble. There's a lot of envy, there's a lot of strife. And you look back over this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and envy was one of the consistent problems that they were having. As a matter of fact just in the previous sermon Paul used the body analogy to say now there's some people in the body that are not satisfied where they are functioning. Sometimes the foot wants to be the eye or the hand or the ear wants to be something else because they're looking somewhere else and they say, that looks like a more glorious place to, to uh, uh, serve lo- the Lord than when, where I've been put. So there's a lot of envy and strife. True love does not envy. Now, we would read that passage, and we would make that application probably with our relationships, our horizontal relationships with our, our spouse, our children, our, our neighbors. And we would read, I should not envy other people. And that's good. That's very ap- uh, uh, applicable. But to the Corinthian church, he's trying to tell them, get your act together. You cannot be a healthy church until you learn to love one another. You cannot really truly love one another until you get rid of all the envy and the strife that's going on in your congregation. So this is a message primarily directly to a church. We just glean the benefits of the wisdom that Paul has shared with us. He says next in the same verse, he says, love never boasts, is not arrogant. And he lands another solid strike at the Corinthians. They boasted in men. They were boastful about having special knowledge. And Paul already told them in the 8th chapter, knowledge puffs up. And remember what he said after that? But love builds. So he's had this theme of love brewing in his message, and he finally is coming out with this full-blown ode to love. And he's saying, true love would not boast about anything. Number three, he says, love never delights in evil, but rejoices in truth. Yet, what did the Corinthians do? They were delighting in evil. Not only did they refuse to discipline that adulterer in their congregation, they celebrated their tolerance for keeping this man in full fellowship. They were proud of the fact that they were tolerating his behavior. Love doesn't delight in evil. Love knows where that line is between right and wrong and is able to clearly take a stand regarding that. Furthermore, the... uh, uh, Corinthian church employed the world's court system to settle disputes within the church. They desecrated the temple of God by defiling their bodies. There was all kinds of delighting and evil in the church. Number four, he said love's not self-seeking. Yet so much of the dispute among the Corinthians was a result of people looking out for their own self-interests above everybody else. Number five, he said love's not easily angered. Number six, it keeps no record of wrongs. I don't know the personal life very well of most of you here today. But it doesn't take a very large crowd. There's somebody there that's still holding on to something that happened a long time ago and you just won't let it go. Somebody has said something, done something that offended you. Doesn't make any difference who that somebody is, how close they were to you. They did something. And you just won't let it go. You've never treated that person the same since. All the warm fuzzies gone. And every time the subject comes up, you remember what they did. And in all fairness, maybe the thing that hurt you, I would totally sympathize with. Maybe there was an abuse of some sort. And I understand. But love doesn't keep a record of what has gone wrong. Marriages survive because each are able to put whatever failures there has been in the past. They don't make it live day to day, week to week, year to year. You don't drive the spouse to finally say, what in the world can I ever do to find forgiveness with you? God can put marriages back together. God can put relationships back together. If you understand love... Keep a record you don't write it down. You don't inscribe it mentally in your memory You don't keep it alive you tear it up you throw it in the fire and say what's done is done It's over we're starting afresh. It doesn't matter where you've been It doesn't matter what you've done It doesn't matter who did it to you from this day forward. It's over. It's done. Aren't you glad? God doesn't keep a record of your wrongdoings It's over when he says it's forgiven It's gone. Here's what love always does. Love's always patient. Love's always kind. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. And love always perseveres. Now here's an interesting thing about this. Some have observed that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of love. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. So let's do this little experiment shall we? If Jesus is the perfect embodiment of love let's go back and insert Jesus in this passage and see how it reads. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no wrongs of doings. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you love incarnate Jesus Christ. Number three, the permanence of love. Love endures. Don't we sing a song about that? There's a little chorus in the back of my mind. What is it? Uh, Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. What is it? His love endures forever. Yeah, it does. Love endures forever. And he, he puts this up against all the other gifts. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness has come, what is in part disappears. Now that's a passage of scripture that has been taken by cessationists to say that tongues are not valid and relevant for today. You want proof? Paul said tongues will cease. He was expecting them to stop any day, right? The problem is we still have knowledge. (laughs) We still have prophecy. Those haven't stopped. So this really isn't talking about Paul is not inferring that this is a gift that was going to come to an end for the church. He was talking about when that which is complete is come. Those things will not carry on into eternity. So if you want to learn a new theological truth, there won't be any tongue talking in heaven. See, we have temporary gifts for temporary people in a temporary situation. And Paul outlines this by just giving examples of how some of these things that are here for us right now to carry us through this journey. For imperfect people in an imperfect world we have gifts to get us there. But once we get there, they drop off, we don't need them anymore. Prophecies are going to come to an end one of these days. Knowledge is going to pass away. In other words, our reliance on having that understanding Where the only, one of the main reasons we make a lot of mistakes is we just didn't know any better. If we just had more knowledge, had more understanding, had better wisdom, we wouldn't have gotten ourselves into those problems. But one of these days, that's not going to matter because you won't make those kind of mistakes anymore. This is another powerful argument for why love is superior to all the other gifts. Because it's eternal. Why is love better than tongues? Because it's eternal. Tongues are just going to get you to the gate, but love's going to go with you all the way. All the other gifts, all the other gifts of the Spirit that are given to men here on earth are temporary. Eternal things intrinsically have a greater value than temporary things. But one thing that we have that is eternal, we have it right now, it's available to us, is love. Love. And of all the things that the Spirit can do for us and all the characteristics we can have as Christians, do you realize how much time that Pentecostals spend on zeroing in on one of those temporary gifts and say, God, if I could just have this gift. Just give me this gift. And I wonder if you've already got the love settled in your heart because that's the only eternal one, priceless one, the one that is dominant above all others, that really matters. Why are we focusing on the temporary gifts so much in the absence of having the Christ-like love that we're supposed to have so we can properly love our family, love our neighbors, love our church family? The other gifts are just finite. They're imperfect resources for imperfect people in an imperfect world. They are stopgaps for us. And we need them. I'm not trying to downplay this. We need them. These are our tools to get us from here to there. But once we're there, we don't need them anymore. They will have done their task. They will have been spent. Love will carry into eternity. It doesn't fade with time. It's not limited to the realm of flesh and blood. In fact, what we know about love right now is just a little bit of A taste of what eternal, heavenly love is really all about. We're not going to go into eternity rattling off messages in tongues and giving prophecies. We're not going to spend eternity sharing great words of wisdom with people. Love will continue on. We're going to spend eternity loving God and loving each other because in heaven there's no strife. There's no war. There's no dissension. There's no argument. There are no bad neighbors in heaven. There's no shifty people to have to deal with. There's no road rage in heaven. None of the junk we have to put up day after day and week after week going through this earth exists in heaven. It's a happy place. I'm old enough to remember living through, and I mentioned this before, the the hippie era, which on the religious side became the Jesus movement, Jesus freaks. But it was a movement that was touting love. Make love, not war was one one of their themes, one of their slogans. Peace. They had peace signs. They went around with two fingers up, peace, brother. They have love communes. They had love inns. It was all about love. But you can't achieve the perfect love down here. It just doesn't happen. We don't understand perfect heavenly love down here. We can make an attempt at it. But in heaven, I don't know what my wife and I's relationship is going to be up there. I, I hope she recognizes me. I haven't know her anywhere. But when we hit the gate, Sonny, we're not going to ever argue again. (laughs) Ever! It just won't happen. It's a place of love. Toys for tots. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. First of all, let's deal with the context, okay? Because this is, as I said, we read this so many times out of context and we don't get how it's relating to the very people he's writing this to. Do you realize when Paul wrote that, when when I was a child, I acted just like you would expect a child to act. I thought with the mentality and the level of a child. And what he's telling the Corinthians in a very sly manner is the way you're acting is childish. The envy, the strife, the arrogance, all these things going on, the, the, the gifts that you're toying around with and you're flirting with, and, oh, I would rather have the, the tongues than the prophecy. No, no, I'd rather have the prophecy than the tongues." Well, I like this preacher better than this preacher." And I, he says, "You know what? He said, "I used to act like that when I was four years old. But he said, "I grew up. What happened to you?" So this is really a message to the Corinthians, grow up! Grown-ups don't act like you act. When I became a man, I quit acting like that. I put away childish things. To the Corinthians, he's wondering, why are you people so enamored with these gifts of the Spirit? You don't have any love in your church. This is so topsy-turvy. And you're all arguing over best gifts and I don't see the first evidence of God's love among you. Of course the gifts are good. Of course they're for us. Of course they're beneficial for our Christian journey. But anybody who spends all their energy pursuing the gifts but fails miserably in the first two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. They're irresponsible children who are mesmerized by shiny toys but fail to appreciate items of great worth. Spiritual gifts have the potential to elevate people among their peers. But Paul would rather people labor in love for God and toward one another than to mishandle the gifts of the Spirit. People who don't know how to operate in love have no business trying to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Paul says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. King James Version, for now we see through a glass darkly. I never did know what that meant in the King James Version. For now we only see a reflection in a mirror. It's obscure. A cloudy mirror. But he said there's coming a time when we're going to see face to face. He says, now I only understand in part. I know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See, right now, the only thing I know about God is face to book. It's the best I've got. But he said one of these days, it's not going to be face to book. It's going to be face to face. Oh, I want to see him. And look upon his face. There to sing forever of his saving grace. I want to see him. I'm getting to the end of reading this book. I want to see him. I don't want to read about him. I want to behold him. For now we see through a glass darkly. We just don't get the image the way it's supposed to be. Live and in color. But then, face to face. So, what's it really all boil down to? Well, this is what he says Now abides faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and love. You know, that was a favorite phrase of Paul's. He loved that Trinity that linguistic trinity and it's peppered throughout his writings in different places first Thessalonians 1 3 if you want to get the notes you want to download the notes or you want to make a note go look those up and you'll see he uses those three in the same breath faith and hope and love Colossians 1, 4 through 5, Ephesians 1, 15 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he incorporated these three, whether you realize it or not, into the Christian armor that we're supposed to be wearing. He said, put on faith and love as the breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. Because to Paul, he understood the value of faith, hope, and love. And when he got done talking about the, the, the gifts and which ones are important gifts and which ones uh, are, are not so important, he came down to the bottom and he didn't say, and now abides tongues and interpretation and prophecy and word of wisdom and word of knowledge and discerning of spirits and faith to move mountains. No, he said, when it's all said and done, there's only three things you really want to hang your hat on, faith, hope, and love. And he said, out of those three, let me reiterate, the greatest is love. Bow your heads.